please tell me that you get random people trying to buy vacuums from you. By by what? Oh, oh, please trust me. I I had so many people who asked. Uh, they're like, hey, I thought you were an IR. Like, when did you get? When did you get? When did you become vacuum clean? <laughs> like, no, guys. It's like power vacuums. So many like vacuum gifts too when I uh. Oh really? And stuff when I when I announced my position, it was it was great. Here's um, a filter for your content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The World in Perspective. Hope you guys are all having a wonderful day. Uh, joining me from DC, we have our first guest on the podcast, Caroline Rose, who's a senior analyst and the head of the Strategic Vacuums Program at the New Alliance Institute, um, and also selling power vacuums for discount. You can reach her at. <laughs> uh, joining us uh, as well from London now, sipping his uh, tea as a true Brit would. Um, we have Scott Cipollina, uh, and then of course, back in Bon Jovi's private residence, uh, Bonn, Germany, is Melissa Ballard, who has just been promoted at ITS to research associate at the US Foreign Policy Program, so congratulations. I hope you guys are all have love in your hearts filled um, in preparation uh, for this Valentine's Day. We are really excited about this, um, not only because um, you know, it's a great time to be with your loved ones, but also because um, an entire country is going to be joining together this coming Valentine's Day. Um, we're going to be talking about the Navalny protests, both the ones uh, that have happened and the ones that have been planned for the rest uh, for Valentine's Day on this podcast. But uh, to kind of bring us up to speed, I'm going to pivot to you, Melissa. You wrote this excellent article um, for Global Analytico at the International Scholar just recently about or what is it about Navalny as a figure in particular that, that is so attractive and what do the protests really say about Russian society? And then we'll just kind of jump in from there. Yeah, I really enjoyed writing this piece. It was a very interesting kind of getting into this topic because I think a lot of people um, would in general agree that the Navalny protests weren't all actually necessarily only about Navalny, um, but he definitely uh, made the best use of his last few months um, with a very dramatic return to to Russia and immediate arrest. And as he returned to Russia, he had this release of this video with his anti-corruption foundation, um, which I think captured the uh, attention of many young Russians, but in general, many Russians in general. Um, I think there's been a lot of frustration in the last few years that was very evident in the last few weekends as supporters have come out for Navalny. You've seen um, young people, you've seen middle-aged people, you've seen even older people, a lot of people with, who've never attended a protest before. There's one statistic that the protest on January 23rd, 42% of the people who attended, this is the first protest they've ever attended, which is quite a high number. And I think that was quite evident of uh, not just support for Navalny, but also frustration at the corruption that um, many feel exists at the highest highest offices in power in Russia. Um, and also, it was quite evident that the economic condition and the kind of the decline in living conditions in Russia in the last few years has also frustrated a lot of Russians. And kind of all of that came to a, I don't know if you'd say, like a 
climax <laughs> on, during that weekend. But that definitely kind of all built to what we saw over the last few weekends. It was kind of interesting to observe. Well, you know, just for our listeners, of course, if you've not been following uh, the news from Russia, you know, Navalny was arrested after returning to Russia on sort of trumped up charges, um, or at least supposedly for violating his his uh, sort of like parole, essentially, from the last uh, time that he was arrested. But, you know, of course, he returned to Russia after having been poisoned with a Novichok agent um, while, you know, on a plane and being treated in Germany. And then he went about Germany, of course, during his time away from Russia and did this recording for this, you know, quite long video. I think it's, you know, maybe an hour and a half. It's almost a movie um, length. This might be two hours-ish. And so what, what made that the spark for Russians? The opposition movement is still active, of course, in Russia while he's, you know, being treated and all this kind of stuff. But what made this the moment that, that sparked the first round of protests on that weekend after his arrest? Uh, I, th- I think that it, it's been a culmination of worrying trends and unlivable conditions in some ways in Russia that made Navalny's return and also his poisoning uh, a moment that has cultivated a lot of angst, anger, and upset with the oligarchy and the governmental system that has been fermenting in Russia for, for, for decades, really. Um, I, if you look at the Russian economy and the toll that it took this year, um, it's it's pretty grave. I mean, of course, Russia is not the worst candidate, uh, you know, in, in the global system that has taken the biggest hit. You know, it's not Syria. It's not Lebanon. Uh, but their GDP lost almost 10 percent. Actually, I think 10.3 percent in 2020. And they're projected to grow again for about like you know, four to five percent in 2021, which is by no means, um, you know, uh, by no means is that relieving for a lot of Russians. And on top of that, too, then you've got this system that a lot of Russians were already aware of, you know, profiteering off of, uh, you know, middle to lower class citizens. And then, you know, the biggest slap in the face is you get the video that, uh, you know, was just mentioned, this two hour video detailing a mansion, uh, not even a mansion, a complex. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen either the it, video or footage of it. It's a verifiable yeah. fortress. Yeah, a, it's, a it's like luxury. you could have that like you in most countries, like that's used for multiple museums, like not even one museum, but like multiple museums. Yeah. And um, it's a complex that, you know, reportedly Putin, like it's his, but I mean, he only occasionally comes in and i mean my goodness there were like toilet rolls that were uh or toilet like roll holders that were thousands of dollars installed in rooms that putin may not even go into so i mean how you know it's it's very understandable the conditions that created uh you know russian sentiment to when they see and they finally watch that video it's outrage and navalny i mean as charismatic as he is and as you know as the face of this movement uh, there is yes, there's there's the, there's that charismatic element, but at the end of the day, it's it's the conditions that got them there. It's it's the fact that they're overwhelmed by this authoritarian system um, that they're not necessarily seeing any any benefits from it. They're not really seeing any any kind of buy-in anymore um, as they once did. Uh, so I, I that's that's definitely my take on it. Is that it, it, this has been a long time coming. COVID definitely accelerated it. Uh, 
you know, the conditions, the financial conditions, the, uh, the, even the medical conditions in, in Russia, they have not really been encouraging for a lot of citizens. You know, there was, uh, there was a case, I, I used to work with a colleague and she was in Moscow and, uh, you know, she wrote a, a, an amazing piece a few months ago about how some of her friends were fined for like trying to get themselves to the doctor's office. Uh, and, you know, the fact that COVID in many ways was worked against them, even though they were just trying to make ends meet and they were trying to get medical access. So, uh, you know, I think, I think that's been a really tough time for them. Building on what um, Caroline said, I'd, I'd like to maybe just take a step back um, as to what what may have been the principal sort of catalyst for these protests that we've seen and the protests that we're expecting in the next few days, etc. Um, and circle back to the investigation that actually found certain GR, GRU operatives as the men behind the attempted murder on Navalny. And while before before the Bellingcat investigation came out, that the, I'm sure everyone has, has, has read and has, has followed along with, it was it was obviously fairly suspected that it was the Russian government behind this attempt on Navalny's life, but it had never been so. And I I struggled to find a, a a comparison throughout history, let alone just in Russia, where a powerful state that relies so much on its on its sort of aura of of invincibility, um, to have been so frankly humiliated. Um, if you if you have a look at just the way that. Bellingcat actually implicated these GRU agents. Um, all they did was use open source intelligence. They just found some phone records. They 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 looked up databases that were, I'd say, readily available, but they were available across Russia. People that are sort of data brokers around the country, and it sort of speaks on a side note to the irony of you know Russia being one of these states of you know very strong surveillance around the country, and in a sense, it's sort of backfired and it's made them open to journalistic investigation um and if you if you just sort of look at the consequences that have that have come about since then i mean the lining of the poison on navalny's underwear there were memes that were circulating around social media just making fun of the F, of the fsb um the, the commentary about you know people expect maybe in russia that working for the S, for the fsb is what you'd imagine to see in the movies in reality you're handling other people's dirty underwear um, to, you know, for, rightly or wrongly, I mean, those are the things that were sort of circulating social media, and then double up the investigation and its 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 profound impact on Russian politics with the fact that Navalny was then on a phone call with the GRU agent that tried to kill him, and he didn't realize that. Um, so when you when you when you take all of that into consideration, I think the conditions that that Caroline mentioned to circle back to her point have they've been they've been brewing for decades. She's right there. Uh, Russia has consistently been a place where you know economic strife has has, has hit thousands or millions of people but there's never been at least in my understanding of russian history there's never been a moment in recent history where the government has appeared to be as vulnerable and as fallible as it has been in the last couple of months so when you when you take that investigation and the findings that came out of it into account i think that for me at least the way that i read into it that that served to be the primary catalyst here um as I said, Russians have, have long suffered corruption. They've suffered economic strife. Um, you, you would ask many Russian citizens, at least privately, and they'd say that they wouldn't be satisfied with the way that their country is run. They might not really be willing to say that openly. But I think the way that the Russian government's been perceived or has been implicated in the last few months 
there's been a a newfound sort of appetite for Russian citizens to call out their government. And I think that that's been primarily the cause of Bellingcat's investigation. And of course, Navalny's actions following that and the fact that he's become sort of martyred in a sense, in a, in, in a strange sense, obviously. Um, so I think that, that that would be what I understand to be the primary cause of what we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. I was going to say just the the I'm glad you went through that, too, because if you look at you know, the last 20 years in Russia, there's always been this you know, sort of high level shakedown corruption and sort of economic sanctions for years. We've had sporadic protests here and there, but there hasn't been such a sort of national appetite. You know, we the the actual protests that happened uh, right right after his his arrest were in, I think, something like 129 different cities all across Russia. Don't don't quote me on that, but they were they spread from all the way in the east to all the way in the west. Um, and you know, when you you have a movement that turns out people in negative 30 degree weather, negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, there's very clearly a, a much deeper anger or frustration in in sort of Russian society. That I'm glad you pointed that out. That there's there's this moment where um, the government seems fallible and therefore also perhaps you know vulnerable, right? There's not this this fear that the Russian government has its eyes and ears everywhere and you will be caught and you will be put in jail, right? Um, and Melissa, you I wanted to pivot to like who is doing the actual protesting though, and you wrote in your piece that there's this this wave of sort of youth activism really starting to make its 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 mark on Russia um, in the last several decades, but most most especially in these protests. Why? What is it about sort of youth generations that that they're tuning into this? Like, what they're why do how have they developed this appetite? Yeah, I think one of the biggest reasons that you can pinpoint is just the fact that young people in general are getting that their media source and their information from sources outside of state propaganda. Um, you can see that I can't pinpoint the exact number, but millions of people are watching the protests happen on independent media source. Um, TV rain uh, rather than the state propaganda state TV channel RT and I think that's very important because and I think this is something that Putin is concerned about whether he says so, not or so but a great tool of authoritarian states is the ability to use propaganda to further their own agenda and the fact that young people are turning away from that is worrying for him and I think that Navalny has been able to use these these independent media sources for his own advantage. I mean, he has his own YouTube channel that, that is quite popular. It has some six million subscribers or something, close to seven million. Uh, and just the video itself, I think, is pushing over 115 million. The video, I mean, the video that he released upon his return to Russia has 115 million views, I believe, right now. And not only is he using these these other sources, um, but Navalny and and young people. Navalny appeals to the young people because of the way he uses media. He's quite ironic and funny, and he's been able to, in a way, poke fun at Putin and his whole regime in in a in a roundabout way. Showed you know the emperor without clothes on, that the emperor has no clothes on. I think that's really important because you had Putin kind of come into power in Russia with a lot of swagger and a lot of, you know, I'm going to restore Russia's pride and honor and chase the oligarchs out of politics and all of that. And, you know, he's exactly, an yeah. Man. And, yeah, definitely. He's definitely built up this image in this in this um, kind of prestige for himself. And I don't think we've ever really, as Scott said, seen a moment where that has been, that image has been so full of holes 
and you can see that kind of outrage um, amongst those who came out to protest, but you can also see kind of the the young people who don't quite believe in that image anymore, don't see Poon in that way anymore. So, Caroline, what is then perhaps different? We've had protests before in Russia that, you know, by and large, I mean, growing activism in general throughout Russia, like demonstrating literally that it is possible to to speak out against the government. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in terms of actual results, you know, it didn't really amount to much in terms of, uh, of meaningful opposition at the time to the, the Russian state or to Putin himself. So right. are these are these protests different or and, and if they're not different in that respect, then what is the sort of ultimate goal of of the opposition regime? Is this a long game play or is this sort of a very direct assault on the gates of, you know, the castle, if you will? I think there's no question that Putin and the Kremlin see this as a threat, right? Uh, and, and in some ways, an existential threat, um, no, no, no doubt about it. The demands that uh, Navalny and, and, and the protesters are issuing with the Kremlin, uh, and specifically with Putin's circle, his inner circle, uh, it's, it's democratic ideals, which at this point in time, the government's not going to be able to, to, nor does it want to, uh, fulfill with the current system in place, of course. Uh, do I think, though, that these protests uh, will be able to overturn the current governmental system um, at, or at least enact a level of change that would be satisfactory? No. Uh, Jeff Hahn, who uh, he's he's a, he's at the LSE getting his PhD, but he does, he does a lot of an analytical work. And he wrote this really great piece for Foreign Policy magazine a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a little pessimistic. I mean, it's not necessarily what everyone wants to hear uh, because so many people are, are, are hailing this as a, a absolute sign of change uh, and, and a sign that Putin's time is up. You know, his, his ratings have never been lower. Uh, you know, this is historical time to be watching Russia, which it is, certainly. And we've never seen a protest like this before. Uh, but, you know, Jeff made a really good point in that Navalny does not have the support of some of the inner political circles and businessmen that historically, right, in, in, 19, in, in the early 1900s and then again in the 90s, when there were signs of political change, uh, they were able to overturn, either by just tearing down the structure entirely, which is not what Navalny and his movement represent, um, and or by changing the system, but by doing it from within, right? Like in, in the late 90s, the system was changed by politicians that climbed the ranks of the Communist Party and they had allies within the government and then, you know, they alienated the current structure and overturned it. Um, you know, I'm not a constitutional expert uh, in, in Russia, nor am I a historian of Russia. However, I think that Jeff made a really good point with this in that Navalny has alienated a lot of the oligarchs and the political elite that should, you know, they, they should receive this kind of um this this kind of uh attention and and spotlight because that's what the purpose of navalny's anti-corruption movement however uh you know in russia typically historically those that's the way to to enact change um and and so i think i you know i i don't necessarily want to be uh a debbie downer about this because i think this this is quite impressive and this is uh you know it's something that's interesting and fascinating to watch. 
Um, and, you know, especially the fact now that we have the Biden administration in place uh, and there's a lot of attention in the EU, despite Nord Stream 2 um, and their own energy relationship, there, there are things that are being shifted. The, the relationship Russia has with the international community um, and certain more like liberal democratic members, that's definitely being changed by the Navalny protest. However, I just don't see uh, it, it enacting some kind of colossal governmental shift in Russia. In fact, it might make Putin more, more paranoid. Um, we don't necessarily know who the successor will be. We don't know what may specifically be next uh, in the current governmental uh, you know, succession in, in, in Russia. Uh, but I do think that the system itself, this is a shock to it and it will make it more defensive. For sure. I love that you pointed out, I mean, maybe maybe this doesn't change the, the, the domestic outlook for the, the near future, but the long-term implications of this for Russia and its foreign policy are will hold significance. I do think that, for example, the West has kind of treated Russia as the state more than the collective uh, group of people as well that live in it. And, and, and often it's forgotten that there's um, a whole lot of uh, state repression. Um, of the people, or at least there's, there's, it's been de-emphasized in the international discourse about Russia per se. Mm -hmm. uh, but if if this is the case, um, that you know, it probably won't amount to colossal change. Where the, the the demands that they're making won't necessarily be met. Um, if that is the case, uh, do, do do you think Navalny and and his his uh, team of advisor kind of recognize this? And if so, what what is their game plan then? Um, I'll pivot to Melissa as well. Um, if you want to look into this, I mean, you've been talking about the rise of, of activism. Is it just to make Russia more vocal in general and then, you know, force more of a slow transition to, to meeting these demands and sort of build democracy from the ground up? Or is this an attempt at the long-term haul of toppling uh, the government completely? And in which case, how, how might that be achieved without the support of the oligarchs, or so without the sort of the support of governmental middlemen, if you will. Mm -hmm. I would echo a lot of what um, Caroline said in regards to the institutional aspects in Russia are quite strong, and Putin has managed to capture those institutional powers, I think, quite effectively. And I would echo her point there that um, Navalny doesn't exist within those institutions, and I think he actually knows that. Um, which is why he focuses so much on on uh, the people being the ones that are going to stand up. I mean, I think he he in the video said that you know there's thousands of these people who work within the state apparatus, and but there's there's millions of us, there's tens of millions of us, and I think he knows that if there's going to be any type of uh, whether it's regime regime change, right? Would I go? I don't think that that's realistic. But if there is any type of change in regards to to kind of moving away from the authoritarian backslide we've seen in, in Russia, it will come from the people. Um, and I think that hangs not necessarily on the activism that has been growing in Russia, though I agree that it has been, and it has been for a decade now. Um, but we've really seen the strength of it in the last four years or so. And that coincides very closely with just the economic conditions in Russia. So I think it a lot hangs on what's going to be happening in the next year, two years, three years, maybe even, and what happens economically within Russia, because the, the Russians, as I wrote in my piece, um, 
they, they they really did sign this this social contract. William Burns, the the longtime diplomat who served in Russia and Moscow, uh, even said, you know, Putin came to the Russian public and said, listen, here here's the deal. Here's the social contract I'm going to give you. You stay out of politics, and I'll make sure there's stability in in economic good times. You know, to paraphrase, um, and for a long time that worked. And then 2008 came, and and since 2008, you know, looking at today, we still Russia still has the same economy size as far I think it's 1.6 trillion as in 2008. Not to mention that the GDP is is concentrated within <laughs> you know oil companies and stuff. This isn't you know a widespread middle class that shares that GDP. There's a lot of that exactly. is concentrated in the upper echelons of society. Yeah, and so you have a really lack of diversification in in the Russian economy. You have oil, which frankly has been in a bust lately. And and so all of that's kind of, I think, created a storm of of this opportunity that Navalny sees and other protesters and other activists that there could be this moment um, where this could be the end of Putin's moment, and I just think that hangs a lot on what happens in the next two years. The economy could turn around, and you know the Russians could re-agree to this social contract. Not that they ever kind of exited, but yeah. Scott, we talk a lot about um, the corruption that's that's driven a lot of this, and that's one of your your fields of sort of a, attention or, or or things like that. How and, and I know you're following sort of the, the the journalism of journalism, for example, in in Russia, and and how um, you know different in you know sources of information are shared and transferred. Is I know that the Russian government's also been looking to you know crack down on on places like like Twitter and, and Instagram and Facebook. Um, how might the Russian government respond? Um, and and sort of you know how do, how do how do organizations like sort of Putin's inner circle, if you will? hide corruption and how might they attempt to do that and at the same time sort of censor the public there's two questions in one there for you i know i'm, I'm giving you a, <laughs> a challenge it's all good it's, all, it's but, all good i guess on the well, on the first half of that question um i think well the, the way that the russian government did respond um well well one of the things that stood out to me um going back again to the the initial fallout the political fallout of of navalny's attempted murder and the findings that followed since that um, act, one of the things that stood out to me was um, Russia today peddling the, the, the theory, the conspiracy, whatever you'd like to call it, um, that Bellingcat's investigation was actually funded by Western intelligence agencies. Um, that was quite telling to me, frankly, because whenever you, whenever you see this, this dynamic that's, that's grown in front of our eyes for many years now about you know, disinformation and fake news and political narratives trying to stir what media outlets do. There's never really been an indirect compliment as strong as this isn't true because it could only be the doings of Western intelligence agencies if it were so. It's that impressive. Um, so I think in a sense there's a there's a there's a there's an implicit recognition from the Russian state that they've been caught out and that they have they've been sort of put with their pants down, let's say, just to be sort of blunt about it, right? Um, now, towards the second point, which is like how a trend that we've just discussed, I, I agreed a lot with what Caroline said earlier, that, that the ramifications for Navalny's movement on the Russian government, I think, will be felt more on the international stage than, the, than it will be felt domestically. And the reason for that, at least to my understanding, is it comes down to accountability. Um, 
and is the Russian government truly, really accountable to its people? And a very pessimistic reading of Russian history would tell you no. But I think that, at least in 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 my view, that would be accurate. Um, and I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Navalny's following, as as powerful as it is and as inspiring as it is to so many people, has the power to create some substantive change within Russian government in the near future. What it has done, I think, is as 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 we discussed earlier, it's lifted the lid off of the Russian government in a sense where it no longer carries this aura or this swagger to Bella, to, to to borrow Melissa's phrase um, that perhaps it once did. Um, where that takes it in the future, it's hard to say. Of course, I mean we're 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 ultimately I think we're going to be speculating in that regard. But in terms of how the Russian government can hide some of the things that are that are fueling this protest now in terms of economic injustice and corruption, frankly, I don't think it does a very good job of hiding those things at all. It and it's 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 fairly common knowledge that Russia is a corrupt country, and politically, Putin has not really suffered, despite the fact that that's arguably the worst kept secret in the world for decades. So, I. I'm equally as pessimistic, I suppose, as the author of the 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 article that Caroline cited. I can't remember the name um, of that writer, but I I don't think that there's a particularly happy story that comes about here. I I just don't think there's a there's enough legs to Navalny's movement. It's just going to be another. I mean, it, this is really pessimistic. I mean, you you wouldn't like to say this, but I just in terms of trying to be accurate, I don't think that the Russian government is going to be particularly harmed in the long term it's embarrassed it's got egg it's got egg on its face yes for sure that's 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 you you can't really debate that but i don't i don't think the long-term consequences of of navalny's movement are going to be particularly damaging to putin at least as things currently stand things can change of course but that's my view now so given that and kind of circling back to that question that i asked earlier and caroline's in intelligent point as well to the the fact that this is going to change how the international community approaches Russia. And we've seen in in recent months and and years um, a question sort of being posed around, for example, Europe, how long do we keep these sanctions going on for? You know, we we don't want to limit our oil supply, heats the homes, right? Keeps everything running. And then at the same time, now with this happening, it's kind of politically difficult for Europe to then say, well, you know, we're going to drop sanctions on a country where there's there's very clearly all of this, um, you know, state repression and state corruption going on what are what's what's Navalny's and just the the opposition in general what's the long-term play then um because they're very in tune with what's going on in Russia right you know they they probably know look you know this is denting this is damaging this is not toppling necessarily at this moment so what is the long-term play then right we've got we do have you know courtyard protests planned for Valentine's Day uh where residents are going to go out into the you know, residential courtyards instead of, you know, march in big cities and just for 15 minutes, you know, hold hold their camera flashlights up or candles. Um, and the you know, spokesperson asked you know, protesters to you know, fill up their social media feeds with, you know, thousands of, of sort of shining hearts from dozens of Russian cities. Uh, no Oman, which is the security forces, no fear. So it's still going on, right? Like this wasn't a one time we did this big protest and and then that's kind of a wrap on it. We've exposed the technology. So things are continuing. So there's there's obviously a longer play here. What might that be? What is 
I mean, I, I'm asking you to sort of look into your crystal balls, and I know that everyone hates <laughs> hates that. But you know, what might change that 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 calculation that you've you've pointed out? I I think that um, that for the activists that they are turning their attention to this year's Duma's elections. I think that's they, the ultimate answer is that they're, they're going to be continue to utilize Navalny's smart voting um, um, tactic. And I think that they're really kind of going to be concentrating on on being as effective as they can in that. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're not ideally positioned, but they are positioned in a way that could be effective. I think that United Russia has its lowest approval ratings or one of its lowest approval ratings since it merged in 2000. And I think that, that, that that's what they're hoping is this kind of slow chipping away at the monster that is uh, United Russia and Putin. Um, I think that that's their realistic expectation is that that's what they can do. I think within their within their hearts, they're hoping for maybe a Belarus situation. Um, I mean, they've co-opted um, some of the chants from Belarus. They've been waving the red and white flags that protests are using in Belarus. And, and I think that they have these realistic kind of goals, like we're going to try and be as effective as we can in the Duma elections. And in their hearts, they're thinking, well, who knows, you know, maybe maybe we're going to have that happen. So probably pushing for a bit of both. I kind of I, I tend to agree that this is it, it's going to be somewhat of a slow burn, uh, you know, in munis- municipal and regional elections, uh, the Navalny factions, they were actually I don't want to say successful. I mean, it wasn't like a sweeping win that they were able to pull off, but they were able to uh, unseat a few deputy seats uh, in two cities one in Siberia, in Tomsk, and uh, the other city of Novobrisk. Britbursk. I'm, I don't speak Russian, so I apologize if I um, totally just slaughtered that. But it's the third largest city in Russia, and I think that's, that's something to be said, uh, just given United Russia's grip uh, within the governmental system. But, uh, you know, I, my counterpoint would, would be if, just look at now what they're resorting to, right? And it's it's going out on Valentine's Day evening and putting your phone in the air. And I mean, it's it's the the photos are looking they're gonna look great. Um, you know, like there is gonna be a narrative attached to it. It's going to try and prove their numbers, and and that does have an effect certainly. But the reason why they're resorting to this is because thousands were were arrested in the streets. And as resilient as this movement is, and as much as we can all applaud them, they're proving that they don't want to risk any more of their leaders, of their people, um, of, of even like the, the softest supporters of this movement, um, risking life, limb, uh, and livelihood going out into the streets weekend after weekend and getting rounded up. And I think we all saw, we all saw the, uh, the videos from the protests the the security forces they didn't joke around it wasn't just a you know if someone smashed yeah it was very brutal and i mean even if you looked at navalny's wife like she was scooped up immediately uh, it's not like she provoked an officer it's it, it it was just because who she was and these people it's not like they're provoking it's not like they're you know using violent behavior it's not like they're being aggressive they're, it's just because they're out there. And so I understand if the leadership wants to pivot and, uh, you know, do this courtyard f- 
flashlight phone light thing um i forget like the official name of it uh so i just i don't think i think it shows that it's it's a movement that uh will survive certainly in spirit and i think russians just won't forget this and i think anyone who who studies international relations and studies russia closely they know that there's going to be more uh material down the line for 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 russian dissidents and and those who are upset with the government to use but it's just it's just not it's not the right conditions right now um and and i think too you know even for the european union as much as they moved on this with sanctioning, they've already have a few sanctions in place over Navalny. There's discussion of more, but as usual, it's Germany that is pumping the brakes. Um, Heiko Maas said that, hey, yeah. you know, Italy, Poland, and a few other countries um, within the European Union, they said, okay, this is just, you know, the trial and the sentencing of Navalny. It's, you know, we can see it for what it is. We need to impose sanctions. Uh, the Navalny's foundation, they, they gave a list of, uh, I think, 35 to 30, I think it was 35 or 36 mm-hmm. uh, individuals that they recommended being sanctioned, with eight being on top priority. And so the U.S. and the EU, they've got material to work with. The foundation kind of made that easy for them. And even still, um, Germany is pumping the, bl- uh, pumping the brakes uh, just because they have that relationship, they've got Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is like over 90% completed. Uh, and on top of that, you know, they've, they've got a very serious economic and trade relationship with Russia that they don't want to jeopardize. And so that, again, once again, it's, it's a deterrent to uh, the EU really taking um, a firm stand on Russia. Uh, and, and again, Germany is kind of that, that backstop and that, that bulwark in the way. Um, and it's, I mean, it's understandable from a geopolitical standpoint. I mean, there are, there are imperatives and, and there are constraints in play. Uh, but I think that's partially why, why the Navalny movement may lose traction in the future is because they don't have any clear international ally. They've got rhetorical support. They've got sympathy. But at the end of the day, the trade relationship still may impede. Yeah, I think if, it, I mean, to, to use a, phrase from international relations that we'll all be familiar with. I think there's a, dis- a distinction to be made here between hard and soft power. And Navalny's, the, the entire aura around Navalny, I think, has undermined Russia's soft power significantly. But then when we get to the nuts and bolts of, of, of what the actual ramifications of this movement might be, I think we're, we're all, we all seem to be pretty much on the same track here. Um, going back to the the question I think that Cameron posed a few minutes ago is what is the end game for the protesters and for the, for for Navalny supporters? Well, there there doesn't necessarily I think have to be a verifiable end game that is near in sight. It 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 could be a simple enough answer that is just that they believe what they are doing is right and they will continue to do it until 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 well that's it. I mean that's just what they're going to do because they believe it's right and it's what guides their actions. They don't have to be necessarily motivated by the potential of a, a significant end game at the end of it, which is in reach within a year or two. Um, and I think that they're aware of that too. I think that, that it would be naive on many protesters' parts to think that as, as, as well-intentioned and as noble as, as we can describe all of these things that we'll see going forward, um, for example, that the, the the Valentine's Day protests, as, as Caroline said, those photos are going to look fantastic. They're going to look great. And they'll be inspiring to many people. Um, I don't think that 
it's going to be misunderstood to mean you know we're going to create a a revolution of sorts in Russia. I don't think that that is necessarily at the forefront of people's minds, but at the same time, I don't think it has to be. And just to close out, then, uh, what, if anything, um, should other, you know, sort of democracies around the world, we talk a lot about sort of the traditional West, Europe and the United States and Canada um, and their response, but how might this change uh, Russia's relationship with other actors outside of of that sort of traditional sphere of, um, you know, sort of checks to uh, authoritarianism? You know, how might this change Russia's relationship in particular with countries like India, where, you know, there is a, a democracy that is also sort of now it's preemptively shutting down social media, um, where there there might be protests um, or other countries where, you know, there's uh, flawed democracies or, or burgeoning democracies that have similar movements. We, we could talk about, you know, the, the similarities and protests around the world. Um, in different countries, you know, Belarus is one example. Um, you're seeing, you know, sort of similar tactics uh, to an extent being used in places like Myanmar. But what does this mean for Russia's standing outside of sort of the traditional Western alliance structure? Um, is there going to be any movement at all? Is this really going to change Russia's relationship with countries in Latin America? Is this going to change Russia's relationship with Japan or Korea? And if not, you know, what, what would it take? I would echo Scott's point that I think that Russia's soft power has been damaged. I think that was an excellent point. Um, but I think outside of the, the EU and the US, um, it's really hard to say. I would say there probably will be little to no effect. Um, but I, I also think that it's, that it, also depends a lot on on where the U.S. goes from here, because you had Biden say that he wants to, for example, put together a summit of democracies, and if that were to occur, um, there could be a topic that does come up, the idea of authoritarian backsliding, and Russia would be a preeminent example of that, um, on what's been happening in the last few years in Russia. And so I think that if Biden were to pursue that path and were to call together a summit of democracies and that were to be a topic, I think that there could be actually more action taken. Um, and I think that Biden actually has little to lose with being tough on Russia. It's a very bipartisan consensus in the U.S. right now um, that that there should be a tough approach to Russia, um, which is unique to a new president coming in. You've had three presidents before that, that all came in with this idea that, you know, maybe I'll be finally the one that kind of resets relations with Russia. You don't have that with Biden. And you have a bipartisan consensus, one of the rare ones that exists in the U.S., um, behind him on that. Um, and I think that that could be a, a relationship that affects other countries um, and not necessarily like Russia one-on-one, -on -one, you know, having their relationship change, but more in that like kind of trilateral manner. And Scott, for the UK then specifically, since there was this sort of discussion about, you know, now that the UK is finally free, <laughs> quote unquote, um, of of the of Brussels, um, that they might be able to pursue some sort of third, better path 
with a number of different countries, including Russia. How will the UK respond um, to, to all of this? I mean, they have been also sort of paradoxically tough on Russia mm. for, for certain things and then and then rolling mm. over, um, you know, for example, when, when there was uh, you know, actions taken on their own soil. Um, we talk about yeah. the... Um, well, I think one, yeah. one thing that will be definitely worth a watch coming out of the UK as it relates to Russia is now that the UK is, is, is free from the shackles of Brussels, um, whether, um, don't read into that in a, in a, in a normative way. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to make that a political point, but it just Mark, is what it is. One of the uh, principal <laughs> of this podcast. You're good. <laughs> but I mean, just the, the, the fact of the matter is that that that's a, an opportunity that the UK has presented itself with, uh, to a degree is that it now has, um, full autonomy over its sanctions legislation. And I think that that is, well, that's something that I'm particularly interested in, um, just given my background and also know, also just from a perspective of a journalist, um, I've done some work on how the UK enacts certain financial sanctions on individuals that are, you know, human rights abusers or, or you know, laden with corruption charges around the world. And now that they're outside the European Union, they have an opportunity to, to, to really be autonomous here and take some potentially significant political decisions with how they treat certain Russian nationals. I think that that remains to be seen. It's something that you know, we're going to have to look at that over the next few years. I don't think it's something that's going to necessarily change overnight, but I know that it's um, it's an area that the UK is looking into now, and it's something that, that we can use to read into UK's policy towards Russia and the wider relationship between both countries in the next few years. Um, I think that's definitely something that, that we should be watching. But then um, whether we're talking about the UK or the United States here or any other, any other, any other nation state that Russia might be really... Um, interacting with going forward, the only thing that I think might on a broad level have some sort of impact um, from everything that we've seen relating to Navalny is that Russia has lost a little bit of its legitimacy on the world stage. And that happens, that's not unique to Russia, that happens to any country whenever they suffer some form of political scandal as big as this. Uh, it's happened to the United States, it's happened to the United Kingdom, and Russia's, no, Russia's not immune to that fact. Um, and how that then, I suppose, manifests in different relationships with different nation states again maybe we're entering the 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 area of speculation here but at least relative to the uk one of the things that i think might change would be now that the uk has the opportunity to do so it might take a tougher political line on sanctioning russian individuals perhaps i mean that's something that we might want to pay a look at this this whole topic is full of asterisks but on valentine's day it will be full of candles um and i do think there is some some symbolism to that um too right i mean we did say right you know great the, the pictures are going to be wonderful you know like and subscribe etc but there's a symbolism to to the candle itself right i mean the flashlight is the extension of that metaphor but uh that you know hey this isn't something that's dying down the candle is lit you know the fire is lit um it's it's still burning and here's how many people you know, for how many people in their hearts on Valentine's Day, you know, that that candle is still lit. Um, and I do think that this will be something we'll revisit on this podcast. Um, I've been, it's been an absolute pleasure to have Caroline join us today. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to. It really does help to get the podcast out to a wider audience. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram, on LinkedIn, 
Uh, and you can follow uh, this podcast at our website as well on www.dintlscholar.com. But that is kind of a wrap for today. Um, so thank you for joining us from myself in Cincinnati, from Caroline in Washington, D.C., from Scott in London, and Melissa in Bon Jovi, <laughs> Bon, Germany. It is goodbye. <laughs>